Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. There is no more ubiquitous quality among humans that makes us unique in the animal kingdom than language. That was the sentence that began our journey to understand language several weeks ago. Along the way, we've looked at many explanations for why that is the case and how language works. But I'm left with a final question, which really was the inspiration for this journey. Does language actually mean anything? This may sound like a strange question. If it didn't mean anything, it wouldn't be ubiquitous. I wouldn't have spent the last nine episodes talking about it. I wouldn't have started this podcast. I wouldn't be bothered with speaking to you now. So let me explain the question more clearly. That task is a challenge in itself, as we need to take a close-up look at language to get the gist of what I'm saying. And this is where the philosophy comes in. It's all very well to analyse how we produce language, how our brain conceptualises it, how we use grammars and dialects and metaphors and swear words to express ourselves. But once we peel back all of those layers, are we actually saying anything? What is language after all, but a collection of sounds that make up phonemes, that make up words, that make up sentences, that make up phrases and paragraphs and chapters and books, etc, etc. But for all of that to take place, we need one crucial thing. We need meaning. We first discussed meaning in episode 59, where we looked at semiotics, the study of signs, and how we can infer information from them. We began with the index sign, like the footprint, the idea that a picture speaks a thousand words. Then we went through to symbols where itches and squiggles convey complex ideas. If we have enough symbols, we can assemble them together to convey every conceivable idea. That is what modern language is. But who decides what means what? This may sound like a question for historians, archaeologists, anthropologists or linguists. But really, it's a question for philosophers. Well, at least many of them have tried to answer it. Let's establish a basic fact, in scare quotes, that we can agree on. Meaning is arbitrary. The squiggles on a page or a stone tablet do not mean anything until we decide what they mean. The process by which that occurs in practice is complicated. But what can we say about it from a high-level macro perspective? You may recall the game Telephone. In Telephone, one person whispers something in another person's ear. Then they whisper it to someone else. And after it passes from person to person around the room, the last person says that sentence out loud. The person who began the chain then says what they actually said. And everyone laughs when they realise how much the sentence has changed. Extrapolate that out over generations over centuries, over thousands of years. What is meaning then? It is certainly not something which is conserved. It changes and evolves. Meaning is diachronic. We can study the history of words. This is called etymology. 
and this gives us some insight into how words have changed over time. But what we are interested in is how meaning has changed. That is more complicated, because meaning is all about context. For instance, if I ask you what the meaning of the word television is, you might shrug and say, it's a screen we use to watch videos of other people and cats. There are many ways to describe the meaning of the word television, all of them pretty straightforward. We're not going to argue about most of those definitions. But what if we ask that question of someone in 1955 when television was relatively new? The meaning of the word then, what it referred to, would not be taken so flippantly as television was novel. Its meaning would be harder to grasp. It would convey more of what it meant for society, the marvel of it, its promise. The word television would be spoken with reverence and wonder. Today, it is something we hear on a commercial where it tells us how we can trade in our old TV for a newer LCD, LED, HD, 4K, Ultra 3D TV. The meaning of the word has changed because the context of it in our society has changed. The synchronic meaning of the word television reflects the normalization of it in our lives today. Now, this may be a trivial example, but apply this to bigger, more weighty concepts like freedom or justice or God. How has the meaning of those words changed over time? It has changed in ways that we can hardly conceive of, not without a lot of research anyway. So if our language is so malleable and fluid, like an organism that grows and changes, then what value can we ascribe to it? In order for language to effectively convey meaning, we have to agree on those meanings, but that is hard enough to do in the present, let alone across time. Language seemingly attempts the impossible. This was the view of the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. While Derrida preferred to shrug off labels, he is best known for his work on deconstruction. Through his writing, he began to break down the structure of language and meaning. And this is what I'm attempting to do in this episode. One of the important distinctions Derrida made with language was between speech and writing. In speaking to you now, I'm conveying more than just words. I'm speaking with tone and inflection. I place emphasis in certain places. I'm able to convey meaning to you with how I am saying what I'm saying. There's little ambiguity in my speech because my meaning is made clear through it. There's intentionality behind what I'm saying. However, when I write words down and share them, they take on a life of their own. Think of a song. A songwriter is inspired and writes out the lyrics, then sings them to a melody. Then you play the song and hear those lyrics. But do they mean the same thing to you as they did to that songwriter? Probably not. The written word is like the blurred reflection of the writer's mind. We can never truly convey meaning in the written word because it is always subject to interpretation. More than that, even if the written word conveys a meaning so explicit that any reader cannot fail to understand them for what they are, then that moment is fleeting. As meaning evolves, the meaning of a text evolves along with it. It is never constant, objective, or definitive. It's like the difference between a stop sign and one that says yield or give way. What is the difference between those signs, or are they really saying the same thing? For Derrida... The meaning of a word is non-present because it is contingent upon its context and the interpretation of the reader. 
So if we want to know the meaning of a word, then to where do we turn? Why not just pick up a dictionary? So what is all of this about meanings changing over time? They're right there in the Collins Dictionary for all to see. We're not protesting in the streets about the meaning of words, are we? Well, we kind of are. Meanings do change. Dictionaries are updated and words come and go from our lexicon because they just don't suit our culture anymore. They become unfashionable or offensive. But what do we use to describe meaning? We use more words. And where do their meanings come from? Yet more words still. Derrida described the circular pattern as difference. Meaning is always differential, relying on other words and concepts. Language is built upon a constantly shifting house of cards where the source of meaning is itself in a state of flux. It's a wonder we can communicate at all. What does all this mean then? Firstly, language is not an absolute. Meaning is constantly being renegotiated. It is irreducibly complex, as the only tool we have for unpacking it is language itself. So we can never analyse it objectively. Derrida described this as aporia, the farthest that we can go with reducing a text to its meaning, which is really not very far, as we quickly find that every word relies on other words for its meaning, and those words have varied meanings and on and on. What we find when we do try to do so, though, is an interesting phenomenon. Language is ultimately defined by contrast. In order for a word to have a meaning, it must be in relation to its opposite. For example, what is the meaning of the word sky? In order to understand what sky is, we also need to understand what it is not. It is not ground. These two words have a dialectic property. They are in opposition. One cannot stand without the other. Meaning can only be found by looking to what something is and what it is not. This concept was earlier outlined by the philosopher Ferdinand de Saussure, who originated the study of science which we know as semiotics. His work was an important influence for Derrida's line of reasoning. Saussure called it reciprocal determination. Derrida went a step further though and looked at how words are played off against each other in a hierarchy. Good can only be understood by comparing it to evil. Love can only be understood by comparing it to hate, right to wrong, and so on. The result of this analysis led to perhaps Derrida's most well-known phrase, there is nothing outside the text. This was actually an incorrect translation, an ironic validation of his point. What he actually said was, there is no outside text. What he meant, or at least what I think he means, was that there is nowhere we can turn to understand the meaning of a word, and thus a text, except more words. And because meaning is slippery, and undefined, we are stuck in an endless loop where our fundamental assumptions about reality are in question if the only tool that we can employ to understand it is meaning itself. This may be going too far, as Derrida was not against giving it a red-hot go. But his methodology was not so much about settling on agreed-upon meanings, but deconstructing text to the point where all possible meanings are considered, and what allows those meanings to exist and acknowledging that meaning is in the eyes of the beholder. Let's be honest about the subjective, diachronic nature of meaning. That is, of all of the possible meanings of a word, let's look at them all and how they influence the way that text can be interpreted. 
Language for Derrida was inherently dogmatic because it requires knowledge that can only be learned through culture and the lived experience of a society. We bring certain baggage with us when we interpret a text. One can never be removed from the influence of culture, so there can be nothing outside of the text we use to describe it. All meanings are derived from that culture, and so are bound up within the language that we use to describe our experience of it. Now you might be thinking, hang on a minute, I read something, I understand what it means, there's no confusion there, so what was Derrida on about? Well, have you ever sent a text or an email which has had an unintended consequence? The person you sent it to was offended, they didn't get your tone, they missed the subtle humour. Somewhere along the way, the communication broke down. This is more than just the lost in translation aspect of the written word. It is everything about the written word. Without the intentionality that is obvious in speech, the written word becomes subject to interpretation. This point is made so obvious in the misunderstandings of those brief written interactions because so much meaning is concentrated within them. Those few words that you put in a text have no hope of conveying your true intentions. Now extrapolate this out to longer, more complex or important texts and misunderstood meanings can fundamentally alter the nature of societies. We're still arguing over the meaning of the Bible and the Quran, after all. But yes, there is something unsettling and incoherent about the notion of deconstruction because it asks us to question our assumptions about that which is most fundamental to us, our language. The software engineer Chip Morningstar definitely thought so, and so he set about writing a critique of deconstruction way back in 1993. In it, he outlined a five-step process for how to deconstruct a text. It's a wonderful satire piece which I highly encourage you to read. Here are the five steps as outlined by Chip Morningstar. Step 1. Select a text to be deconstructed. He chooses the example sentence, John F. Kennedy was not a homosexual. Step 2. Decide what the text says. This can be whatever you want, although of course, in the case of a text which actually consists of text, it's easier if you pick something that it really does say. This is called reading. I will read our example phrase as saying that John F. Kennedy was not a homosexual. Step 3. Identify within the reading a distinction of some sort. It is a convention to choose a duality. In this example, the obvious duality is homosexual-heterosexual. Step 4. Convert your chosen distinction into a hierarchical opposition by asserting that the text claims or presumes a particular primacy, superiority privilege, or importance to one side or the other of the distinction. You don't have to give a justification unless you feel like it. In this example, we can claim homophobia on the part of the society in which the sentence was uttered and therefore assert that it presumes superiority of heterosexuality over homosexuality. Step 5. Derive another reading of the text, one in which it is interpreted as referring to itself. You get maximum style points for being French or writing in French. Applying these steps, this is Morningstar's deconstruction of the text, John F. Kennedy, was not a homosexual. Quote, It is not generally claimed that John F. Kennedy was a homosexual. Since it is not an issue, why would anyone choose to explicitly declare that he was not a homosexual unless they wanted to make it an issue? Clearly, the reader is left with a question. 
a lingering doubt which had not previously been there. If the text had instead simply asked, was John F. Kennedy a homosexual? The reader would simply answer, no, and forget the matter. If it had simply declared, John F. Kennedy was a homosexual, it would have left the reader begging for further justification or argument to support the proposition. Phrasing it as a negative declaration, however, introduces the question in the reader's mind, exploring, sorry, exploiting society's homophobia to attack the reputation of the fallen president. What's more, the form makes it appear as if there is ongoing debate, further legitimising the reader's entertainment of the question. Thus, the text can be read as questioning the very assertion that it is making. End quote. I do urge you to read the whole paper. It's a, it's a brilliant satire piece, and uh, I hope introducing it here lets off a little of the intellectual pressure that's been building up. Chip Morningstar rejected claims that he was criticising postmodern deconstruction. He said he was only making fun of it. I tend to agree. Ironically, though, the effect of this mock deconstruction is to highlight the very point of it. This line of thinking, which became prevalent in the 20th century, called into question many of the assumptions of positivist philosophy and materialism. I explored some of this in the series on power last year, particularly Michel Foucault's work. This serves to outline what has come to be known as continental philosophy, a term which is used to describe the thinking of a group of European thinkers who challenged the traditional narrative. Derrida's call to question the meaning of a text is an important philosophical consideration for the study of language because it makes it relative. For me, this is one of the important aspects of language which makes this remarkable faculty that we humans have so interesting. We've covered a lot of ground in this series. We've gone from the prehistoric origins of language to the social, psychological ways we use it to this point now where we see that as much as the faculty of language is inherent to our humanity, beyond the physiological and neurological features which enable this gift, what we actually do with it is entirely bound up with our cultural, social worlds, which are in a continual state of flux. For all of its ubiquity, language is a continually evolving aspect of our humanity. There are around 7,000 languages, each of which employs different symbols for conveying meaning through sound and text. Those meanings have been formed over thousands of years, and they continue to be shaped and moulded by social and cultural forces. Every decision made by every person, group or nation is conveyed through language. Language has the power to declare war or to declare love. Language can save the soul or condemn it. The very words I've written and spoken over these last nine episodes stand on record not as an exploration of this topic, but as a record of how I thought about it at this moment in time. The words I used, what they meant to me, and what I assumed they meant to you, were synchronised to this period in our history. Not just the concepts themselves, which will be sure to change as we continue to unravel the mysteries of human nature and the natural world, but the very meanings of the words themselves and how they fit together to transmit information and ideas. And all of your words do just the same thing. They are a reflection of who you are, a changing, evolving source of experience interacting with others on the same journey. If there is one insight that I hope this series has given you, it is that as ubiquitous as language is, it is also entirely unique to you.
Your language is a window into your mind and a window into your metaphorical soul. And perhaps more than any other aspect of your personality, it defines who you are and what you will leave behind. Your language is your legacy. Yes, language is a cultural tool, but most importantly, language is a gift. It is your gift. So use it wisely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.